0: Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jay and Ellie.
1: I'm Lorelai Weisel.
0: And I'm Brian Dawes. And today we are going to be talking about War of the Spark Forsaken. Uh, now, uh, last week there were some Theros previews and some Theros news. We will cover them in future podcasts because today we want to dedicate this one to War of the Spark. So one thing I need to say about this here is that I did work on this book, uh, but I should be clear, I am under non-disclosure agreements, and I have other agreements that make it difficult for me to do uh, criticism of these. So my castmates will be doing those while I just do the summary here. With that said, and out of the way... Let's talk about the second, the follow-up to War of the Spark, Ravnica, War of the Spark, Forsaken.
1: Gee whiz, if only somebody on this podcast had a degree in literature studies,
0: (laughs) who could do literature review? Wow. So the story begins with an epilogue, where Kaya mourns the people who died in War of the Spark, Ravnica. Uh, It kind of reiterates the ending of War of the Spark, Ravnica where each of the three planeswalkers who collaborated with Bolas in some way were sent to hunt down the ones who uh, stayed on the bad side or switched sides too late. So Kaya is sent after Liliana Vess, Ral is sent after Tezzeret, and Vraska is sent after Dovenban. So we're going to split this summary into character arcs because it gets real complicated otherwise and can be hard to follow. If you're just uh if you're just listening to us. So we're gonna split it into each of the hunts. In between these, I should note we don't we're not really gonna get into this, but there is a burial for Gideon on Theros where the Gatewatch uh bring his armor there along with some allies. Uh Kiora pointedly does not go back to Theros for this. But the <laughs> others all go and <laughs> the others all go and bury um bury Gideon and have a nice little ceremony for him. Huatli does a poem slash song, and it's a it's a it's a poignant moment for a fan favorite character. So let's move on to the hunt for Liliana Vess. So Liliana, after escaping from uh, Ravnica, has fled to the Caligo Morass. Uh, she has a some very despondent moments. Uh, where she almost gives in to the Raven Man and the Onaki spirits, and she goes on and on in her mind about how she wasn't worth Gideon's sacrifice, whether or not that's true. So, elsewhere, Ka- uh, after being assigned to assassinate Liliana, Kaya, Teo, and Rat all are relaxing in Orjova and end up meeting the Triumvirate, which are essentially the heads of different departments within the Orjov. you know, below the guild leader. They all clearly do not like Kaya as the guild leader and want to oust her, but they have some false pleasantries there. Tamek ends up coming in, having found a loophole that will allow Kaya to pass guild leadership temporarily. So she's kind of been trapped on Thera—excuse on, me. She's kind of been trapped on Ravnica because uh, all the debts she inherited when she killed the Obsidian. Uh, she feels like they will; it could possibly kill her if she tries to leave, or it could do something catastrophic to the guild. So Tomek has found a loophole for her to pass those debts on temporarily, and Kaya reveals that she can bring Rat along on the journey to find Liliana, which is something we'll talk about later. Jaya agrees to lead Kaya to the uh, Caligo because she's you know been there before. Uh, but first, they are going to bring Teo home. So Kaya and all of them head to Gobakan to return Teo. Uh, Rat loves the diamond storms and ends up pocketing all the diamonds that get left everywhere. The people of Gobakan don't find diamonds particularly valuable because they just, you know, literally fall from the sky. Teo's old monastery ends up kicking him out. Uh, they're happy to see him back, but Teo is too uh, unorthodox in his methods. And he's so powerful that the abbot is worried that his friends, his young the younger acolytes, will try and copy him and get themselves killed because they do not have his innate power.
1: I laughed so hard because it's like the abbot was like, Hey, you do all kinds of unorthodox things and what is unorthodox about Tao is that he's like a natural savant with his uh shield magic. Like the, the only thing that's unorthodox is that he's like supernaturally good at it
0: he has like his technique is is different than everyone else's as well because he like balances out the magic by doing the little magical earring thing on his ear to compensate and stuff like that they all head to uh dominaria to track down liliana on dominaria jaya leaves them having brought um Having brought them there, she wants nothing more to do with this mission. And they end up finding Liliana with a slave collar on in front of her ancestral mansion, which was burned to the ground not, what, two months before, something like that, uh, serving a mistress also named Liliana Vess. So Teo fumbles with the slave collar to try and get it off Liliana uh, and Kaya and Liliana end up facing off. They, you know, Kaya is ready to fill her mission. Liliana is defiant. She's starting to regain her liliana ness um, And Teo ends up pre- uh, preventing them from killing each other because he's had doubts about this mission the whole time. He, he recognizes that without Liliana, they would have lost the day and does not feel like uh, they should kill her. So what's really happening at this mansion at the old Vess estate is that there is a faux Liliana who was a cabal functionary who stole a djinn's lamp and used its power to disguise herself as Liliana from the book, The Fall of the House of Vess. So there was like an illustration of Liliana that this fake Liliana looks exactly like, and it does not look like the real Liliana.
1: Yeah, yeah, this is... um... One of the neat little reference things. So The Fall of the House of Vess is a work that is referenced on the Masters 25 version of Will-o'-the-Wisps. And then uh, the djinn and the lamp in the story are Zahid from the Dominaria set.
0: Liliana ends up taking on the djinn with the power of the chain veil uh, until Rat and Teo realize that the djinn is just a prisoner like them. Um, the the jinn is eventually allowed to go free. Uh Liliana helps defeat the imposter, and the spirit gem, which you might remember she took off with, that is the gem that was hovering around uh, Bolus's horns, is revealed to be uh, the reason it's called the Gem of Becoming, is because it allows you to become your truest self. So um Rat grabs it and. Everyone can see her all of a sudden. She's no long, she no longer has the Curse of Insignificance. But she gives it up in order to help Liliana. And they use this gem, after having kind of like an uh, astral plane conversation with Ugin, to free Liliana from the Chain Veil. In the end, uh, they decide to essentially parole Liliana. And they will use the Chain Veil as evidence of Liliana's death. Liliana takes on a pseudonym, Anna, after her old uh, mentor when she was still mortal, and Eora after Gideon's true last name. It's revealed that their next step is to go to Kaya's home plane and solve whatever the issue is there. And that's the Liliana side of things.
2: The next part of this book that we are going to discuss is the hunt for Tezzeret. Um Basically, Raul is given this assignment and is aided by the Wanderer who is able to follow the leaking parts of the planner bridge that is stuck in Tezzeret's chest. She agrees to do this because apparently she has some kind of feud with Tezzeret allegedly and um, she doesn't really give a lot of details about why she's doing it and she kind of forestalls any attempts to get that information as well as Um, Kind of stiff arms him when he tries to get a look at her face, which apparently has some kind of mask on it. So they follow Tetherrith's trail, which he he does a lot of plane hopping to leave kind of false flag trails or whatnot. Um, And they finally get to another plane, uh, which is Esper, that he planeswalks to, but he has a very long trek from the point that he planeswalks to, to his fortress. Um, and he does that on purpose because he wants them to be super tired just like he was. So in, that, in the course of these travels, um, a little bit of explanation is given about the Wanderer's abilities. Whereas she tends, if she falls asleep, she wakes up on a different plane because she has to concentrate to maintain her, um, her anchor on a plane. Whereas other planeswalkers have to concentrate to get off of a plane.
0: Yeah, the Wanderer's power is a bit unique because it's kind of always on, and it works like like Brian
2: said, the opposite of other Planeswalkers, which is a which is
0: an interesting facet.
2: Yep, and I'm really interested to see a little bit more of that, but we'll, we'll like, I'll I'll talk about that in our conclusion portions. Um, but anywho, they are walking on Esper trying to get to um, Tezzeret's fortress. And they meet a lot of Tesseret's underlings who try to harry them as they progress on their way there. Um, He has a number of reliable underlings, like a homunculus—I can't remember the name—and there's a a very strong gargoyle-type creature that he's able to that lead his troops or forces to interrupt uh, their trek, like they walk through some kind of bog that has this these creatures that ooze super sticky stuff that Rao has to cut his hair.
0: Yeah, there's there's a number of death traps inside uh inside Tezzeret's fortress, one of which is a uh, sludge strider from shards of alara that has this sticky ooze that traps everyone, everything that sticks into the like the tar.
2: It's crazy. It really messes up his hair, and at one point it was so bad that, like, the wanderer was it? The wanderer's sword got stuck to Rao or, uh, but yeah, it, it's it was it was all sorts of bad. So when they finally get to Tetheret kind of bloodied and nicked up from their encounters, which, like, they don't suffer any kind of major difficulties, but some some of the fights are kind of you know
0: it's it's kind of uh uh, the attrition of all this stuff
2: yeah um so they engage in this final battle with tezzeret and right in front of tezzeret there's another grouping of uh gargoyles and monsters that come down and the wanderer is allegedly has um a bit of an issue with one of them and gets knocked out and is forcibly planes walked away allegedly Allegedly. (laughs) I'm I'm using the words allegedly because there's some shenanigans that that happens later in the the story that brings all of this into question. So, Ral is finally on a one-on-one with Tezzeret. And um, Tezzeret eats the lightning that he shoots on him, funneling it into the planar bridge. And basically calls Ral out like, dude, you're you do the, you're a one-trick pony and the trick isn't even all that great and it's awful against me. So he eventually drains Ral of all of the electricity that he can throw at him and then he offers Rao a choice. You can go back to Ravnica with this arm that I'm about to give you while I replace it with a better arm and you can tell the guilds that I'm dead and I can be left alone or I can beat the crap out of you. And Ral takes the honorable route and says, no, I can win. And he can't win because Ral beats the crap out of him.
1: It's ridiculous. They mentioned uh, Tezzeret has seven inches on Ral and 70 pounds and is also made out of Ethereum partially. Like, I don't think people understand how big of a seven inch height difference is. That is massive. There's no way Ral is ever winning a physical fight.
2: Yeah, the, the, there's not that it... Boxers, that that kind of stuff is highly noticeable. It's like even Drago going against, um, not even Rocky. It, like Rocky had a noticeable difference in height and, and, and reach and whatnot, but like it, it's like even Drago going against maybe Rocky's trainer. Like it, it's it's a huge disparity.
0: <laughs> you know, that's a very good uh, reference because. The trainer, whose name I now forgot because he called him Rocky's trainer, uh, talks about uh, both dinosaurs and uh, thunder and lightning. So, (laughs) which both appear in the story.
1: Now I want a director's cut of Rocky IV where uh, Dolph Lundgren just goes around and just beats the hell out of every other character in the movie.
2: But yeah, it, it's it's really bad. He beats the crap out of Rao, leaves the arm for him, and's like, Look, you're gonna take this arm, you're gonna leave, and I'm gonna just be gone now. So he 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 leaves and Rao leaves and he takes the arm and returns to Ravnica.
0: Yeah, Tezzeret explicitly tells Rao that to use the arm as proof of death.
1: Alright. So we move on to the third part of the story. The hunt for Red October. So Sean Con- Oh, I'm sorry. A hunt for Dovin bon. That That's my bad. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, after Gideon's funeral, everyone spends the night on Kaladesh. Except Jace, who... See, Jay, this is why we don't let you write show notes. Because your show notes say everyone spends the night on Kaladesh except for Jace, who gets it on with Vraska.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. they skip their the point is to fit, to fit the information in as small a spot as possible
1: it's as dorkiest spot as possible anyway point is Chandra can't sleep so she goes to Dovin's old house and she finds uh, Sahili and Watley there too uh, Watley stayed over Sahili's house because they're gals being pals and uh, they discover just when they think Dovin hasn't been there, uh, they realize, wait, it's been dusted and recently. Um, so they find some blood and they start tracking. And so they start looking around, but but there's no sign of Dovin. So um, this is uh, Vraska's quarry. So she ends up meeting with Vivian Reed, who is going to help her track down Dovin on Kaladesh. Because uh Vraska hasn't been there before and like doesn't know the area and needs someone who like can hunt and track and stuff.
2: And Vivian's useless. I mean useful.
1: So uh they track a whole bunch of blood around town, outside of town, across the bridge, across the river, then it doubles back, and it just ends, and, and they realize, you know, Dovin kind of led us on a little wild goo chase and planeswalked, and now we have no idea where he is. Uh so Jace is looking for Vraska this whole time um, because the Gatewatch does not know that the uh, Guildmasters have been sent on these assassin missions. So Jace is all worried because he thinks Vraska is keeping secrets from him because she is. Vraska ends up finding out that Dovin, being the galaxy-brained fellow he is, has hidden (laughs) in the only place... That nobody would ever look for him. And that is Ravnica. So she ends up finding him. And tracking him to a Ravnica safe house. But it's a little too easy. Because Dovin has a deal. He knows that. Um, he knows that Izoni, The Matka of the Devkaran Elves. Are, is allying a resistance to Vraska's rule. Um, Izoni wants to start a war with the Golgari. And Dovin thinks, hey, if I fix the Golgari, that's like, what an optimization project. So he cuts Fraska a deal. Hey, look, don't kill me, and I will help you not only maintain control of the guild, but win over the and elves. You will be queen of the Golgari as long as you live. So uh, the first little trick, uh, he has a jar of spiders that are identical to the ones Zoni controls. And Vraska has a, hatches a plan to use them in a false assassination attempt on the Devkaran Huntmaster. we find out is Mikesil Savad Zunik, the son of Gerard, the former guildmaster. Mikesil's a character from the Dissension novel, and seeing him back is pretty cool so uh Mike Zills survives this attack and is brought before Frasca and Frasca is like look Mike so I know that Izoni's not doing great things but you can trust me I will protect you and if you can stick with me and and help unite me and the elves you know we can have a stable Golgari and and, and Mike is generally for this plan So, uh, the next part of the plan, because Vraska's basically, I mean, the guild, Nivisa has basically said, hey, we're going to murder you if you don't murder Bolas' pawns. So Vraska maintaining control of the guild is contingent on her killing Dovin. So she follows through on a plan to fake Dovin's death. Uh, she enrolls the help of Chandra, who is super duper depressed after Gideon's death and is severely hungover. And uh, they end up going to Ragatha and tracking Dovin to the outskirts of one of the cities in a hideout. And uh, Vraska cuts off one of Dovin's hands and calcifies it so that it can survive the journey back to Ravnica. And um, they uh, set up a plan with thopters and illusions to make it look like Chandra kills Dovin, where Dovin just walks back to Ravnica. So uh, Chandra is fueled by revenge here. Um, and and is kind of manipulated into Vraska's plan they end up uh, Vraska ends up returning to Ravnica uh, with Dovin's hand and Chandra thinks that Dovin is dead and doesn't she doesn't feel good about it though Um, and, and that's kind of how the hunt for Dovin bond ends
0: so in the finale, all three stories converge again at essentially a a trial with the guilds, where each of these planeswalkers is put in a Verity circle to report out on their missions. Now, before we get to this, I should note, there are a lot of little things in this plot that we missed, but these are the broad strokes everything that happened.
1: Yeah, this is the, we read the book so you don't have to, but here are the things that happen so you know that they happened version.
0: Raoul admits his failure and uh, he, he has the arm but he says I failed to capture Tesseret," which does not go well for him uh, with his guild which we'll talk about in a second uh, but Chamberlain Marie is is very ecstatic that Raoul messed this one up uh, Vraska comes with her quote unquote proof of Dovin's death which is a statue that he prepared uh, but while she is lying about Dovin's death, a Demir assassin actually kills Dovin. And that Demir assassin is Rat. So Rat is unable to decide on a guild to join, was it was a very common thing in the first novel. Because she's already in a guild, the Demir, although not particularly consciously. Essentially, Lazav uses her as a sleeper agent, and embedded when she was a young child an alternate personality in her that he could activate whenever he needed her Curse of Insignificance, because what a great power for a Demir assassin to have. So Rat, as her demir assassin personality, kills Dovin while Vraska is lying about it, which presents some problems because Dovin had not yet revealed the rest of his plan to Vraska, so not only do the demir have leverage on her now because they have proof that uh, she lied, but she doesn't even have uh, the ability, she doesn't even have the stratagem to keep the Golgari going.
2: One thing to note about this is that Vraska Ver- was in a Verity circle, which if you're not familiar with this kind of magic in D&D or anything like that, it's a circle that that means you have to tell the truth in it, but Vraska was able to skirt this because of having Chandra with her, to uh, effectively steal the kill. And then Chandra believed that she stole the kill because Dovin prepared holograms that basically made it appear that it, that Chandra pushed him into a pool of lava. And Chandra was able to testify to that account. So Veroska was able to say, no, I didn't kill Dovin Bond, but Verasca out or that Chandra outside of the Verity Circle would say, yes, I'm the one who killed Dovin Bond and she was and she believed the fact that she killed Dovenbaum.
0: So because there was a fake Liliana, Kaya's lies are pretty easy because she did kill the person she only knew as Liliana Vess. Uh, just the, it was the fake one and they present the chain veil, the the sort of broken but still has some magical power chain veil as proof. So, final outcomes if you're just tuning in and you wanted to skip the rest of that and just know what the outcome of this book is, because you, you jumped ahead and from our show notes, here's where things stand after War of the Spark Forsaken. Ajani, Jaya, Teferi, and Karn have left for Teferi's daughter's home on Dominaria to plan an assault on New Phyrexia, or more accurately, discuss the New Phyrexian problem.
2: Hashtag watch.
0: Jace has returned home to Vryn. His, remember, his memories are back and his big purpose is now over. And so he's kind of adrift. Uh, and he's finally going to return home now that he remembers it years and years later. Jace and Vraska's relationship is off to a rocky start. They, they could be okay, but Vraska's uh, stress with the Golgari is, is putting a bit of a lever between them.
1: They are back to real life.
0: Vraska's leadership of the Galgari is on shaky ground, with Lazav now having leverage over her. Bun is dead. Rao's control of the Izzet is off to a rocky start, where Chamberlain Marie almost usurps the guild from him, uh, but he, he just scrapes through. Kaya, Rat, Teo, and Liliana are on their way to Tolvada, Kaya's home plane that she's pretty sure Nicol Bolas had done something to and offered his help to fix it like he does uh, and now is going to enlist their help to fix whatever the problem is there.
2: Like he did. He doesn't do it anymore, at least
0: not at the <laughs> present moment. Everyone who is not in that group believes that Kaya killed Liliana. Shanja and Nyssa, they're both, burgeoning relationship is is over which we'll we'll talk about in a second chandra becomes the reckless hero from the idw comics tomic has assumed a permanent temporary guildmaster position with within the orzhov with Tesa kind of comfortably being if not a a, a sh- puppet master a, a a power behind the throne advising him on what he needs to do she kind of played the triumvirate against uh everyone else in this basically the the powers of the orzhov to uh cement Tomik as the face of the guild with her doing pulling a lot of the other responsibilities and having a lot of the real power tezzeret in a surprise has allied himself with lazav as they concoct new plans for ravnica and the war in the multiverse. Lazav is very happy to have an agent of his traveling the multiverse with Kaya. So that's that's essentially it for War of the Spark. Now, this is perhaps—I I, I mean, even I can say this. This is perhaps the most controversial magic book that I've ever seen.
1: Oh, you noticed?
0: Uh, that's a smidge, a smidge. Uh, you know, I I couldn't really talk about it, but. Uh, The two of you can. uh, And why don't you talk about it? Okay. So the big one here is Chandra and Nissa.
1: I don't think anyone is surprised to learn because it's been a bunch of weeks. So everyone kind of knows about the really dumpy paragraph that exists in this book um, that basically says, wait, Chandra isn't actually into girls. She's straight. And this isn't going to work out. You know, we we're at a point now where there's been an official joint apology from Wizards of the Coast and um, Del Rey Publishing about that chapter. Greg Weisman has issued a personal apology about it. Uh, Mark Rosewater has reconfirmed that on Tumblr that y- yes, the intent is for Chandra to be a disaster, pansexual. Like, let's. So, like, we're recording this episode at a point where like this paragraph really isn't canon anymore. There's a lot of eh things in this book. This is the y- yikes paragraph in this book. Uh, it is uh, if you haven't actually read the book and and just seen these screenshots going around. Uh, the paragraph is just one section in, in, in a whole chapter um, that deals with Chandra and this uh, agreeing to part ways. The breakup itself is one issue, and I'm going to deal with that in a moment. Um, if the breakup is going to happen... There's like no reason for this paragraph to attest Chandra being straight. Like there's no reason for this paragraph to exist. You can do this kind of breakup in a lot of ways. The book itself threads a line of Chandra having serious emotional trauma from Gideon's death. And, um, for the first time in her life, like feeling really tepid about her emotions, which is really frightening for her. And she doesn't know how to handle it. Um, that alone would have been a workable narrative element to promote a kind of breakup. Um, if you're going to do the bi storyline, the pansexual storyline, having her be uncomfortable with her first girl crush is legitimate. Um, I am pansexual. It took me five years to come out publicly and come to terms with that. That is a legitimate queer storyline that could have been told. Uh, none of those things happen though. Uh, <laughs> Which is why the paragraph is bad. I still don't know how that got published, but so be it. Like the the way audience interaction with with content works, like literally, people just ignore the paragraph. Just ignore it. Just don't stop treating Chandra and any different as a character. And then Chandra and Nissa breaking up is a separate issue. Uh, obviously, I can't. Because of my my work on feature sets, I, I can't really talk about the feature of magic and and where this might lead in intent and whatnot. If the intent of this book is to end with Chandra and Nissa separated, I'm very confused at this because that's where Amanket Block left off. Like like Amanket, the set had the moment where they just missed and aren't connecting. They were only brought back together in War of the Spark Ravnica only to be taken apart in this book. And that is a weird structural thing between these two novels that I don't understand and why it exists. Because like you had a state and then the end goal was to be in that state, but an intermediate step was put in that now angers people because of the way it was set up. Um, and and there's, there's a fine line that I'm going to say about uh, the responsibility of uh, folks creating stories within IPs. That, that they have two fan audiences. And um, this, is, this is a very specific example of the way this kind of responsibility works where creators and authors have a responsibility to a fan base to create stories that the fan base will enjoy. Um, that, that is both from a entertainment perspective and obviously from a business perspective. You want to make stories that your audience wants to consume not having Chandra and Nyssa together at the end of this story because they set it up in War of the Spark Ravnica. They are behooved to continue it and pay it off because that is what us, the audience, wants to see. To go back on that is a mistake. Like, I am, I am not coy about that. It's an absolute mistake to not have Chandra and Nissa together at the end of this book. I don't know all the motivations for it. I don't know all the plans behind the scenes for it, I know that it is a misunderstanding of what the audience wants. And uh, a lot of people, pretty much everyone, feels kind of betrayed by that decision. And that's what happens when you don't properly manage the responsibility as a creator to your audience. And that is disappointing to see, Um, especially when it's done so well with Rowland both in Gathering Storm and then uh, a little bit in in this story, and done so well with Hakara and Will in other stories, and to see it dropped so hard here is unfortunate. And that's basically all I have to say about that because that was a lot. That was a long rant.
0: One of the other big issues raised uh, is Kaya bringing along a passenger by using her extending her ghostly form to another living being and essentially extending the protection of her spark
1: very quick i buy the metaphysics i do not buy the motivation i do not like when plane bound characters get shifted to other planes regardless of the method this is my problem with the weather light this is my problem with a lot of older stories i'm fine with the metaphysics of it i'm not fine with the actual act
2: I'm kinda not okay with the metaphysics of it either. I am definitely not okay with the the reasoning of or the idea that Kaya would it, to me it doesn't make sense if if Kaya's going to kill a planeswalker and she knows one of the planeswalkers who decided to accompany her doesn't want to doesn't agree with the, the assignment that she's been given. On top of the fact that that person wants to carry someone who doesn't normally go with her. Like, this seems like a whole big deuce ex machina kind of thing that I I don't really like at all. um, Being inserted into a power structure of a a planeswalker. Now, I I understand that Kaya's original card kind of hinted at this. And if that was the intent of the card, then kudos to the wizard team for... Like inserting that onto the card way back when, but I still, this, it it feels a little bit too forced for me, and I'm not a big fan of it. But, you know, that's just me, I guess. Um, But again, going back to the reasoning of why Kaya decided to take Rat along, it's, it's kind of loose to me. It's, I understand that maybe Greg and wanted to have his main characters included in the story so that's why rat and tail had to be there it doesn't make sense to me for an an accomplished assassin would willingly carry someone whom they know could possibly interrupt with their assignment and then on top of that do something that would possibly weaken them in the in the attempt to do that because she's never been to dominaria before why would she willingly carry rat with her when she knows It drastically, like, it leaves her vulnerable for an extended period of time. Like, it just, it makes no sense to me strategically why she would do that, especially when she knows that one, if not both of them, are against killing Liliana, no matter how justified that is. Like, to me, logically, no assassin would take that on, would take that on that burden willingly for no reason. Sure, she she wanted to make sure that Rat was didn't feel too alone by herself, but she has a job to do, and like it just well, logically to me, it makes no sense why she would agree to do that. That that's one thing, and I guess that that also leads into another thing where there was a lot of assassinating going on in this book, and the the worst of it was the character assassinations of Liliana, Chandra, and to a certain extent, Vraska as well um it, it seems to me that all of these these ladies have in this book taken huge steps back as far as their the way that they think or perceive themselves or the world and it really bothered me um like Liliana's was pretty bad Chandra was kind of understandable like the over-reliance on Gideon was kind of surprising to me but i kind of get it you know i guess loss affects everybody differently so sure but verasca's was just jeez. i to me she hatch was seeing this whole thing where relying on someone she's supposed to have killed makes her a lot more vulnerable than just outright killing him on the spot in the first place and maybe i'm just I'm overly logical, or maybe the logic is just missing me. But to me, it's just like, if you know that someone has the power to undermine all of your authority on on one of your goals to maintain the Golgari and keep them strong, just the act of possibly being caught in the lie later. Like, if somebody sees him, he's blind. He can't account for everything going on. And just... Just not outright killing him when you had the chance just made no sense to me at all. And I feel like they they really did her a disservice, not only with her relationships with Jace and the Golgari. It's just the way that she views herself as being not enough to do what she originally had plans to do really seemed like it really undermined everything that was built up all of the goodwill that she had earned in um, Ixalan. And I I was not a fan of all of, I can't say character growth because it was, it was character anti-growth. I don't know what, I can't, the word isn't coming to me, but it it exists. And it just, it feels like all of these characters took huge steps back in the way that we knew that they had grown in the past. So,
1: Kind of quickly. Uh, I agree with Liliana. I, I I wasn't a fan of how Greg wrote Liliana in War of the Spark Ravnica. I'm really not a fan here. Um, the, the main introspective element for her in this novel is that she was, in fact, positively influenced by Gideon in general from spending time with him and especially his sacrificial moment. Except that realization happens at the beginning of the book. So, like, she has all these introspective moments that don't mean anything because she's already hit the introspection right away. She has a line at the end uh, where she is thinking to herself and she goes like, oh, I hate introspection. And I'm just like, yeah, I hated your introspection too. And like, it's not great. Um, I, I, it's not that it's out of character. The, the snark and sassiness is still there in a lot of moments. She, I think she feels a little too defeated. I don't, I don't know there. She is not defined enough at the beginning. Um, I, I, she doesn't have an arc, she's kind of flat through the whole novel. I, I would like to see a, more of a shape, um, in in how she behaves and responds to this post war era. Um, I disagree vehemently with Chandra. Um the the um sexuality stuff aside, I think finally putting her in a position where her only function isn't just be the manic pixie firecracker girl, um, is good because that's what she's been for like five damn years. Uh, having her actually have to do, de- you know you know what does Chandra look like when her emotions are stunted? Uh, what, is, what does Chandra act like when something so core to her being isn't working? Like what what does Chandra look like when she feels broken? Um, that's what this novel worked with. I liked that characterization. I don't think it effectively makes the leap to the I want to be more like Gideon and be a hero. But I also like where that ends up. Uh, that's that's a big part of how I wrote her over the summer for uh, Core 2020. The part where she wants to be good, but her power is destruction. How does she deal with the fact that she has killed um, many times in the past? These are things that are not the, oh, Chandra needs a new mom to teach her how to do fire better, which has been rehashed since Purifying Fire. Um like like she has a moment where uh, Jaya is trying to comfort her, and she tells Jaya off and says, "If I want to comfort, I'll go talk to my real mom." And I'm like, "Yes, finally somebody said it! Like stop giving Chandra mothers. <laughs> she doesn't need them. Let her go off and be her own person." And and so I like I like that movement. The uh, I was mostly fine with Vraska. This is Vraska getting back to daily life this is jace back in her life this is this is all the threads of raska over the past uh, year and a half converging and being complicated and uh how does she navigate that how does she she's still a black aligned character she's going to do what it takes and she's going to prioritize certain things and it's going to look selfish to other people but it's going to make sense for raska the she has a moment early when she gets the assignment uh that like she doesn't really give a crap about dovin like she'll kill him because like she needs to to maintain her rule but she doesn't care if dovin lives or dies um and that ends up factoring into her working with him through the novel i'm fine with that i think i don't think either of these novels play to greg's strength as a writer Uh, he's largely a television person uh, a lot of his exposition in these books feels like stage directions you'd find in a screenplay. There are specific little editing quirks, uh, which probably would be caught if there was more time to work on these novels, where uh, an adjective noun pair will be repeated throughout a chapter. Um, that feels like bold texting in stage direction in a screenplay or or uh, set description. And, and um, a, a lot of this just feels like Greg doing the writing he's comfortable with but in the wrong medium and i th- I think that explains a lot of the episodic structures of the way these books are constructed which is weird it makes them go fast because the chapters are very short but the it's essentially cross-cutting and I, I don't think that works as well as in a novel form that's an overall structure thing that i think undercuts anything else that is trying to happen in the books um it it, it i have I think I finally figured that out because I, I don't think I had words for that when War of the Spark Ravnica was out. But uh, like War of the Spark Ravnica, there are a lot of tiny things in this book that I liked. Um, a lot of little detailed things. Um, and so I know this book is not good. And a lot of you probably didn't read it. And if you made it this far in the episode, thank you for making it this far. And like, just so you can hear what happened in, in our words and, and just get the summary just so you know what happens at the book without having to buy it or read it. Uh, But I did want to leave off on a small positive note. Here are 10 things that I actually did legitimately enjoy from this novel. Uh, Number one, Lazav saying, I'm a scamp earlier in the book, because he is. Uh, Two, Kira leaving Arabnica right before she says something actually heartfelt and sentimental. Uh, She doesn't care. She is selfish. She's bratty. Uh, She almost says something nice and is just, she just stops kind of like focuses inward and just like pieces out. That's so Kiora. I love her. Jace is still insecure. Um I I like a lot of what's being worked on with Jace here. He has his full memories and, and he has trouble dealing with that. Um part of the reason his and Vraska's relationship is shaky is because he's really insecure. Um you can see that in the last scene where Vraska like says hey I've been keeping all these secrets from you here are all these secrets and Jace's response to that is oh my god things are not great. Even though like Frasco just confided in him and did a very trusting uh, thing with him um, emotionally. And uh Jace being uncomfortable is a constant in his life. And I like that that's continued that that uh, Jace with all his memories isn't like some super duper magic wizard who can do anything. like he's still he's still this poor scared trans boy that he has always been. Uh, number four. There's a moment on Kaladesh between Vraska and a young girl named Aisha, uh, or Aisha. Jay, help me out here.
0: I think it's it's Aisha, it's Aisha, I believe. Aisha? Yeah.
1: You know it's dire when I'm going to Jay for pronunciations.
0: This is like the one time you should.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, so they're in Ghirapur, and Vraska sees this little girl playing a little marble game and talks to her. Vraska's like terrified because there's no Gorgons and she's afraid of being perceived as a monster and, and the girl just like thinks likes her and tells her she's pretty and Vraska's like, well I'm Queen Vraska. And then she's like, Can I be a princess? And then Vraska's like, sure. And then she ends up giving the marble to Vraska. Um and it's a very small and sweet moment. And and reminds you that Vraska's like really compassionate and really friendly and really nice. And uh, the version of Raska that she can be when she doesn't have to be an assassin. And then that gets echoed later back on Ravnica when she is helping a Devkaran elf, teaching her a marble game using the same marble that she got from Kaladesh. And that's that parallel is really sweet. I like that. Um, five, the trash talk between Jace and Lavinia. So Lavinia is acting guildmaster of the Azorias, and she and Jace just drag each other. Like, so hard. It's so funny. I laughed multiple times in that chapter because Lavinia hated working for Jace. But, like, Jace also hated being living guilt-packed. And, like, everything's different now, and, like, it's just very funny. Uh, six, the Raven Man is back. Probably one of the more disappointing things narratively for me about War of the Spark Ravnica was the Raven Man is nowhere to be found during this final battle. Uh, he finally shows up again, and he talks about, you know, you know not having uh, finished plans for... For Liliana, yeah, you know, he he will return one day, he says. Um, so like she finally gets separated from the veil, vale, which is fascinating because it gets her out of the veil vale narrative, but also the veil vale narrative isn't over. It's still there, the Yonaki are still in it. But her her thing with the Raven Man may may continue. Uh seven. Ralin the Wanderer's conversation on Ixalan. Uh, I adore the Wanderer. I got to essentially create a personality of her mostly from scratch for arena uh, and it's it's pretty similar to where to where greg ended up ended up in these stories she is so brusque and confident and uh it's not condescending uh she's a little snarky um but but she she is a co- a slightly chattier version of Clint Eastwood's character from uh Sergio Leone's spaghetti western so uh good the bad and the ugly uh fistful of dollars for a few dollars more um i really liked her characterization there i like that we got hints of her backstory so like we know she wears a mask we know we don't she doesn't want people to see her face uh we know she has some beef with a pre-bolus minion tesseret. uh that's cool uh she's a fascinating character i want to see more of her i really like that conversation moment because she also like dunks on Rao multiple times just fun number eight love seeing mike zill in this book i love deep cuts bringing him back from Dissension. Jay, I assume you had something to do with that. Uh, I'm not going to put you on the spot. But like, uh, even just anything you may have done in that, thank you. I don't know who did that, but it's so good. I love seeing things name dropped like that. Uh, nine, Tesa and the Orshov politics. We don't get a lot of political maneuvering in Magic. It's largely an action game. Um, all the stuff with Tesa and Triumvirate and Tomek and Lazav and uh, Kaya. I loved that. All that maneuvering, all the double crossing and manipulation and the undermining and, like, ah, it was so fun. Tase is a fun character. And, uh, finally, number 10, the small reference at the end to Nikki Drayden's first Ravnica story about the Demir with the Demir baby. Uh, it references Lazov Lazav mentions taking the, uh, the Merit's son baby. Uh, Merit was the last name of the, uh, man in, uh, that Demir story who whose kid can teleport around the teleporting baby uh that baby is mentioned here which, which finally ties nikki drayden's stories to the main story which i thought was awesome and that's that's the 10 things i liked about war of the spark forsaken
0: okay so uh not quite final thoughts but final recommendations would you recommend so let's say buy or read brian would you recommend anyone buy or read this story
1: nope to both
0: lorelei would you recommend anyone buy or read the story
1: i will explain more next week god don't buy the book if you if you want to know all the details of what happens read it it's not important it's not tied to a block story just listen to our episode if you're here in this part of the episode already you probably just listened to the episode so that's like good enough
0: all right let's move on to final thoughts for me, I am looking forward to Theros. We've been we've spent several weeks going back through Theros stuff. Uh, Theros was, in hindsight, one of my favorite planes. I didn't appreciate it when it was around, but after it was gone, and I was reading the stories, and I've reread them quite a few times now. I really like Jenna Helen's novellas. Uh, I am excited to see it return.
1: Uh, My final thought is, uh, remember the uh, Dolph Lundgren cut of Rocky IV? Uh, He doesn't actually fight everyone in that movie. He does end up with Pauly's robot at the end. It's a really sweet romance.
2: That robot looks like Grace Jones. Anyway, my final thought is that... (sighs) gonna bit. I don't know why I didn't see it coming, but I didn't see it coming. All my goodwill for Rat and Lazav vanished at the end once I realized... All of it was just a Xanatos gambit, and as much as I liked Rad in the first book, the ending of the second book really killed it for me. So that's my final thought.
1: If you also want to fund a Dolph Lundgren cut of Rocky IV, you can head over to patreon.com slash theforthoscast and support our show today. None of the money actually would go to making a Dolph Lundgren cut of Rocky IV. Um, It would help support our show so we can keep making it every week. And uh, keep y'all entertained and up-to-date with news and uh, read books so you don't have to read them. <laughs> um, you know, maybe we'll make a Dolph Lundgren cut one day. Uh, I I would not be opposed to it. Um, I think that's stretch goals for the future. But everyone who signs up gets access to our Discord community, where we have orthoses from around the world just having a good time together. We're right about to head into Theros. It's so good. Everyone's talking about stuff. Everyone's speculating. I love it. This is like my favorite time to be a Magic fan because there's so many new things. Nobody knows what's happening, but everyone thinks they know, and some people gets right, and some people gets wrong, and some people are half right. It's so much fun. So if you want to get involved with that, or you just want to see us keep making this show, then we super duper appreciate all the folks who head over to Patreon and support us, because we cannot make the show without y'all folks.
0: You're gonna eat lightning and crap thunder. This has been the Vorthos Cast.